Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Hello, everybody. Um, my name's David Runciman, and it's my great pleasure to be here to talk to Tara Westover about her extraordinary book. As it says on the front, the number one New York Times best-selling book. It's about her life, but it's also about many things, including education, what it means, what its value is. Um, we will make sure to leave plenty of time for people to ask Tara questions. But we're going to have a conversation which tries to weave in some of those themes, both the life and the education. Um, One of the questions they might have is why that's the wrong cover. Oh, yeah, I should say, <laughs> this is the American edition. Don't look for this in the bookstore. I didn't change it out of my suitcase, so sorry about that. <laughs> um, OK, let's start at the beginning. So you, you grew up in a small town in rural Idaho. Um, yours was not a typical small town rural Idaho upbringing. But just to set the scene before we get on to why yours was different, describe the community you grew up in. What kind of a place was it? So it was really small, mostly Mormon town, population of about 200. My family lived about a mile outside of that metropolis. Um, so you thought it was a big, big town? No, I know I didn't. I, I do remember, my brother said to me once that he does remember thinking of the kids in that town as city kids, which... <laughs> Obviously now is a bit silly. Uh, yeah, it's a population of 200 people. Uh, so, no, yeah, so it was, it was a really beautiful place. The mountain was really beautiful. And in a lot of ways, it was a beautiful childhood. My mother was an herbalist and a midwife. We spent a lot of time on the mountain gathering rose hips or yarrow flowers or mullen or whatever she needed to stew into tinctures. And um, not a midwife in the sense of this country where she, had, she didn't go to medical school. But she, one of the reasons she didn't go to medical school is because my father didn't believe in doctors or hospitals. He had a, a theory that they had been corrupted by something like the Illuminati, that they were actually trying to do harm and not, not trying to heal. Another one of his paranoias was public school, public in the sense of the, that the state runs it. So, uh, so we were never allowed to go to school. So there was this kind of element of radicalism of isolation in my childhood, even though it had all these really beautiful elements to it. You know, we had a junkyard, which when I was a kid was a pretty fun place, actually, which we would spend a lot of time ransacking these cars. When people crash their cars, they don't, you know, clean them out. So you can find just about anything in these cars. And uh, so we had this, you know, kind of complicated childhood where things were really great and really beautiful. and beautiful mountain and fun junkyard, and my mother had this magical ability to heal people as far as we were concerned, uh, but then we were really isolated from people, so I never went to school or to the doctor, and I didn't have a birth certificate until I was nine, which if you think about it, because I didn't have school records or medical records, kind of meant that according to the state, I just didn't exist. And that is absolutely not typical for the place where you grew up. No. I mean, it's part of what you really insist on in this book, that this is about a Mormon upbringing, but this is not in any sense a typical Mormon upbringing. The people who lived yeah. in, in your little town did not live like you lived. No, I mean, the first sentence in the book is, this is not a book about Mormonism, because I think I didn't want to write a story that would just confirm the caricatures that people have about Mormonism, and then, and then it would also just not be true. So everyone in my town was Mormon, everybody went to school, everybody went to the doctor, Everyone pretty, had a birth certificate. Everyone had a birth certificate. By, by you and your siblings. It was pretty much my family and maybe one or two other families that had this that lived in this completely different way. And I, you know, I've long speculated that my dad had something like bipolar disorder. So it's kind of been my opinion that the mental irregularity caused the religious extremism and not the other way around. So I, I do my best to try to redirect people away from saying, see, this is about Mormonism. Because I, I don't think it is. Mormonism is a character in the story, but it's not the causal factor. And so your father had views which, again, were extreme, but they weren't unheard of in the world that you grew up. Very suspicious of government, very suspicious of Washington, very suspicious of anything that had the word federal in front of it. Um, but he went further than anyone else, right? He, he went the, 
As far as you can go down that route? Much further. Um, <laughs> How far did he go? Well, I think, you know, route? I'll just give you an example. So Mor Mormon Church tells people you should have, right now I think it says they should have a three-month supply of food. I think at the time it said a year was good. My dad was going for 10 years. You know, he was really going to get ready for the end of days, which he thought were coming. You know, my whole life there was always an event that was going to happen this year for sure, the world is going to end. So we were constantly getting ready for it. Other people in our town kind of casually believed, sure, when the second coming comes, it'll might, happen. there might be some trouble, but it'll be fine. Whereas my dad, you know, this was our lives. We were waiting for it all the time. When I was 14 and Y2K happened, I think other kids in my town just kind of were shrugging that off. Whereas for me, it was, you know, the world was going to end, and that changed the way that I experienced everything, and especially because that was the age where, you know, I'd never had a, I never had a friend before who went to school. I never had a friend really at all, but definitely no one who went to school or to the doctor or anything like that. But I did meet uh, a kid my age who went to school, have one really weird conversation because I wasn't super socially. <laughs> Socialized. No, I wasn't great. And, uh, but you know, that I remember thinking if the world is going to end and then these people were going to come try to take our food because my dad was kind of worried about that. And so it kind of made even the people in our town look different because you think next week when the world ends, you are going to be coming trying to take my food. Because we've got way more food. Because we you. have food and you don't, and you're going to want to come take it. And so it, it would make us have kind of this weird relationship with the people that were, you know, just people. In fact, we were related to most of them. And, um, <laughs> and, and yeah, you're still kind of looking at them like, huh, yeah, we, we're going to be in mortal combat in a week, you know. Um, of course, it didn't happen, but... And so each time it didn't happen, how did you look at your father? And how did he, how did he move on from each non-end of the world? I think the Y2K was the first time that he seemed really diminished after. And just to remind people, that was the millennium bug. That yeah, was like the year the 2000 was going to crash because they had a... Planes would fall out of the sky. Yeah, and my dad really thought that was going to be the end. A lot of people did, but my dad really did. And uh, yeah, I think it's... Um, that, I think the Y2K was the first time that he... I felt kind of sad that the world didn't end. We were so ready for it. You know, we were so prepared. And uh, my family, we'd kind of been kind of looked down on, or we'd been gently made fun of for the way we were living. And then this was going to be the the ultimate vindication. The kind of ha. Yeah, we were going to be the new aristocrats, right? We we're going to have everything, and everybody's going to have nothing. And uh, we were going to be driving because we had all this fuel buried in the field, and we were going to we were sorted. And um, yeah, and then it didn't happen. And I remember feeling like a little bit annoyed with God, thinking, how could you deny this to him? It's like, he's been such a faithful servant, and then you've just denied him this, this thing that you've promised. And um, I think it was the first time I felt sorry for him. And how did he react? Did he change? Very depressed, yeah. I mean, he always got depressed in the winter, really, really depressed. And so, yeah, he was extra, extra depressed that year, I think. Yeah. So you said you, 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 know, you had the scrapyard, and it was fun, but you also worked in it, right? I it mean, wasn't fun it was when we fun worked in it. <laughs> and it was also incredibly dangerous. It was really fun until we started working in it, and then it was dangerous. And we're working, we're talking, you were, what, 10, 11 when you worked there? I started when I was probably 10. I mean, the thing about a scrapyard, though, is, um, you know, when, the first time I went in and was sorting nuts and bolts, I was probably five, but really working in it, I was probably 10. And my dad, uh, it's hard for me to help people understand this <clears throat> because I think the tendency to judge or assume bad motives is so strong. You know, my dad, it was an incredibly dangerous place. People got hurt all the time. I had a brother who, who got lit on fire. I got, you know, impaled in my leg by a piece of iron. Um, my, my brother fell 15 feet, had a really serious head injury. And in every case, that's only a couple of them, uh, in every case, they were really just avoidable. They were completely avoidable. Like, they were doing things that they ought not to have been doing without, without safety equipment, without halters without, without things that they needed. And, um, you know, my dad, I think as part of whatever was going on with his head, he just didn't seem to have the ability to evaluate risk, and he didn't seem to have the ability to learn from his mistakes. And even when people were injured, he didn't always have the ability to understand how serious the injury was. There was a real... He had this kind of belief that, that God and his angels were working in the scrapyard, and that because God was in control of everything, nothing really bad would happen. And then if it did happen, that that would be because God wanted it to. And so there was this kind of just 
insanity to the way the scrapyard, and scrapyards, any scrapyard is dangerous, and then our scrapyard was just really dangerous. And I, you know, it's hard for me to convince people that it wasn't, it wasn't that he was cruel, that he could value our safety and still be completely unable to keep us safe, or even be the reason that we weren't safe. But I think the ultimate proof of that really is uh, you know, the worst injury that happened to anyone in my father's scrapyard happened to my father, because he was standing next to a car, and he decided that there was no need to uh, puncture the tank and drain the fuel before he lit the cutting torch to remove it, because I guess that's what pansy liberals do. So he, um, <laughs> so he did that, and the car exploded, because, you know, fuel is flammable. And, um, and he was burned terribly, really, really badly. Uh, and my parents, because of the beliefs they have, they treated that at home. So they had no IV, they had no morphine, they had no painkillers of any kind. And you know, he nearly died. And so it's not the case that he would give himself medical care and then deny it to us. It's not the case that he was really cavalier with our safety, but really protective of himself. You know, whatever was going on in his mind, that, that made him behave that way towards us. It, it was entirely sincere. And I think that's hard for people to get their head around, that you can have, there can be people in the world who care about you and, and can still hurt you in, in really serious ways. So every child growing up kind of knows the world that their parents create for them. And then you have a sense there's another world out there, but you don't really know it. You're not familiar with it. Um, and in your case, you saw very little of it. Did you, I mean, w at what points can you remember feeling this is a bit, Odd. My family. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that upbringing. I mean, when, when did you notice that there's a world out there and this does not chime with that? Much later than I think anyone would. I think I, mean, I think I was still working on that realization at Cambridge. So, you know, I was 17 the first okay. time I set foot in a classroom. I went to, I kind of tricked my way into BYU and I, I had to buy an algebra book and teach myself algebra. And then I told them I'd been homeschooled, which wasn't really true, but I got into this university and I wasn't at all prepared for it. And we should say a Mormon, a very good university, okay, yeah. but it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I can say, but there. it's a Mormon university. Uh, no, it's, it's a good an, it's school, an but I, yeah, I, I was not ready for that. Um, no, one of my first lectures, I raised my hand and I asked what the Holocaust was, because I hadn't heard of it before. And that's something I really do not recommend doing. Um, you know, people thought, people thought that I was being anti-Semitic. They heard it as, you know, what is this? Whereas I meant it very sincerely. What is What is this? And, and then uh, you went home and you looked and it up. And I went home and looked it up. And like, oh my God. That was, that was a real shift. You know, living in a world where the Holocaust happened is very different from living in a world where it did not. And I think what happened in that moment is that world that I've been living in starts to melt away a bit, or it starts to change, or things start to feel very uncertain. And then there would be these periods of time where I just felt very much suspended between two worlds and two identities. Because when I was at college, I would kind of pretend to be normal, and I, my friends would talk about going to the doctor, and I would act like I'd done that. I didn't know what that really meant, because uh, I never had. But um, uh, I would kind of live in this world and pretend to be kind of mainstream, and then I would go home and, and live a completely different life. You know, when I, when I, you know, I went home when my, when my dad was burned terribly, and, and that whole time just thought, you know, he's nearly dying, he's burned horribly, he's in an unbelievable amount of pain. And, uh, and the whole time, I didn't know. Half of me thought they were completely insane and that they were risking his life for no reason. And, and another part of me thought, no, this is exactly right. This is what God wants them to do. If they took him to the doctors, the doctors would kill him. And I, I was in both of those mindsets. And so that, that decision, because you, you, you really had to want to go to college to get there. Um, and do you think you were? drawn to something that you thought was out there, or do you think you were running away from something that you knew? Was it more, were you more being pulled or were you more being pushed? I think people want to, they want to believe that I was drawn to some ideal of something that I wanted. That I knew what education was, I had an instinctive idea of this, so I was Even never having books. experienced it, you just kind yeah, of, like, I think you twigged it was out there. I had a brother who was, you know, would sit, he would hide under the sofa. My parents would never punish you for reading. They liked you to read, but then they also liked you to work more. So, so if they saw you reading, there's a whole farm, there's a lot of work to do, they would kind of be like... You couldn't read in the so scrapyard. You couldn't just read, you couldn't read anywhere, because my dad would come in and have work for you to do. So my brother would read the encyclopedia under the sofa. He'd be under the sofas, you pull the lever, and, and, then the, and he would crawl underneath and, and read. I did not do that. I was not that kid, you know. The encyclopedia? Uh, then I would have learned about the Holocaust. But, um, but he did, and I was not that kid. I wasn't, I had goats, I had horses, I had a mountain. I didn't think there was much that I needed that I didn't have. 
I think until my life got fairly miserable when I was 15, 16, I was working in my dad's scrapyard. People were losing fingers. People were getting lit on fire. Um, and then, of course, they weren't getting treatment, which, you know, I didn't, it's not like I felt like they weren't getting treatment. I felt like they were getting treatment, but I could also see they weren't healing that well. You know, whatever treatment they were getting, it wasn't really working. Uh, or sometimes it worked, but not perfectly. And, um, and then I had this relationship with an older brother of mine that was really problematic, and he was quite violent and quite aggressive. And another one of my brothers just came home, kind of saw that relationship, I think, a bit for what it was. This is my brother, Tyler. And he had, he had a different upbringing than I did. You know, my dad got more extreme as he got older. And so Tyler had been allowed to go to some school. And he had gone to a university. And he just said to me, you have to get out of here. This is a way that you can do it. I'll help you with the application. We'll tell them you're homeschooled. You're going to need to teach yourself some algebra. That's going to be miserable. But you can do it. I did it. You can do it. Uh, so that, that's what I did. And this is in a town where how many of the kids who went to school went on to college? Very few. A lot of them go to community colleges, or they go to one or two years of Idaho State. I mean, rural schools in general really, really struggle with graduation rates. So they might go to college, but if they do graduate, it takes them seven or eight years, and then a lot of them just don't. So it's, so it's not like it's the obvious escape route for no. the other kids there. It was, it was your way out, because that was the only way out. It was a way out. I didn't know what it was. I'd never been in a classroom before. So it's not, I didn't have some idealized idea of education. I was actually really terrified that I would be brainwashed. I was really worried about it. I was worried my dad was right. I was worried that if I went, that I would be joining the Illuminati. You know, I mean, this was my view of it. And were, it was actually Were you my waiting brother, for them to come and knock I on your, the really Illuminati, they come and knock on your door and say. <laughs> I just, I don't know why. I was just, How do you join the Illuminati? I've I don't even know. I've grown up being told that there's brainwashing, that these are evil people, and I very much believe that. It was actually my brother, Sean. I had a conversation with my brother, Sean, who was the violent one, the crazy one. And he actually was the one who said to me, I said, oh, I don't think I should go to college. I think dad's probably right, and they'll brainwash me and all these things. And he was the one who said to me, actually, you will know when you get there. You, you're smart. You're not, you know, dad's not any smarter than you. And, and when you get there, you can evaluate, evaluate for yourself what that is. And if, it, if it's terrible, and if it's run by the Illuminati, and Satan has a hold, you'll, you'll know. You'll, you'll suss that out. You don't have to take dad's word for it. Why don't you just go find out? Stop whining about this and just go find out. And, uh, and I found that, um, yeah, just the first time someone had said to me, I think, you don't need to take, you know, it's a kind of patriarchal religion and a very even more patriarchal family. I think it was the first time that someone had said to me, why would you take someone else's word for it, even your dad's word for it? You've got everything you need. You've got everything he has. Just go figure it out. So I want to talk a bit more in a second about what college was like and then how that story goes on. But just to talk a bit more about your family. So this is partly about, um, I mean, your family, they were a tight unit. And, it, and it's about f a fragmentation of that unit in a way. I mean, different people are pulled away in different ways, and different people stay behind. What's it like now? I mean, how, how fragmented is it now? So, my, so a lot of the book is about identity, and it's about change, and it's about all the different versions of a person that can exist in the space of a life, and whether, whether your first self is your only self, your only true self, or whether you're allowed to change. And especially, it's about what happens, or what you're supposed to do when uh, when the people that are close to you can't really accept the change, or they can't really accept any other version of you. So my, you know, my family, ultimately, I would become estranged from half my family. And it would have to do with my brother, with a violent relationship with him. I would confront my parents about that. And they would, they would choose to say I was lying, especially my dad. And so a lot, of the, a lot of the reason I wanted to write the book, actually, was to write about these issues of estrangement, because I think they're complicated. And I think. I didn't feel like there were stories. I didn't feel like there were enough stories about it. You know, when I was going through it, and, and I say going through it because it's a long process. It doesn't happen overnight. I don't know anyone who gets estranged. You know, on a specific day. But I felt like I felt like there were a lot of stories that were written about estrangement, but they tend to be written by people at the end of their lives. And I think I think that feels very different. I think your feelings settle. I think mine will settle toward the end of my life. And I wanted to write the story. While the, while the feelings were still very much in conflict. You know, just those, those things that you can feel and think that actually don't make sense side by side, and yet you, you think and feel both of them, like 
that you can love someone and still choose not to have them in your life, or that you can miss them every day and still be really grateful that you never have to see them again. Um, these were the kind of, of emotions and, and ideas that I, I wanted to write about as a story, because I do think these relationships, they have a real power to them, and that's why they're so hard to get away from. So when you got to BYU, you, you immediately spotted that people knew things that you didn't know. But presumably, you also thought you knew things that they didn't know. I mean, so your typical first-year college student is going to have know what the Holocaust is, but they're not going to know a lot of the things that you knew. Did you, did you sense that? I mean, did, did they seem naive to you in the way that uh, you seem naive to them? They were yeah. kind of... They didn't, they didn't know they life. Like, they didn't know. They would take aspirin, and I would be like, you're poisoning yourself. You oh, don't that know kind it. of naive. Yeah, no, that's what I, and none of my other knowledge was terribly useful. I didn't get a lot of opportunities where I was able to say to someone, you know, I can use a cutting torch and you can't. So <laughs> it never came up, right. weirdly enough. Uh, I think I changed some tires very deftly in my time at BYU, and people were impressed, you know. <laughs> But no, I think the things that I knew and, were, and was good at were completely irrelevant. You know? But did you not know things about life that they didn't know? Such as? Just how tough it can be? I guess. That's not, that doesn't always come across as knowledge, I think. I think, right. especially if you haven't kind of processed it properly, I think it, it can have effects on you, which you know, that may or may not come across as wisdom. It may or may not be wisdom at that point. You might just be, um, yeah, if you haven't kind of confronted it, I think. I don't think I was particularly wise or settled or... I was in a panic most of the time. I was having to talk to people who were not my immediate family, which I'd never really had to do before. And that's, you know, you think all these little social things that we do. Hey, how are you? Fine. How was your weekend? These are things that we just know how to do. I did not. <laughs> uh, so I was kind of a nervous wreck. So were you always translating in a sense? Do you always hear everyday speech and think, what are they saying? I just, people would try to talk to me and I would just kind of panic. And there was a period where I realized that I, this was just something I needed to learn how to do. And I started going to my classes early and I would listen to the conversations between people. Yeah, that really horrible banter. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? And I would write it down. <laughs> and then I would try to memorize it later and that doesn't work. Because <laughs> uh, then, then someone walks up to you and says something like, hey, it's raining outside. And you're like, fine. And it, doesn't, it doesn't always, uh, yeah, it doesn't really work. So, um, but that's kind of the stuff I was doing. And then there was just the fact I didn't know anything, and I was going to history courses, and they were talking about Europe, and I thought that was a country, and uh, I'd never heard of the civil rights movement. And um, so, no, I, I don't think I came across to anyone as particularly wise. <laughs> and you, to start with, you thought you were going to study music. That was the. And then as you experienced more and more different kinds of knowledge, went to different kinds of classes, you moved away to something more like history. I mean, it was, you did a lot, right? You studied a lot of different things there, but that was the big shift. It was for me. I think I had gone to study music because I thought that was something I had been introduced to on the mountain and thought this is, I heard opera for the first time. And, and I think that was the first time it occurred to me there might be a reason to leave. There might be things that were worth leaving to learn that you couldn't learn on the mountain. Someone would have to study this for a great deal of time. And if you wanted to learn how to do it, you'd have to go somewhere and find someone that they could teach you. So I thought I could study music. It also really, that settled in very well with my conception of myself and what I was supposed to do with my life. I was supposed to get married. I was supposed to have children. I was supposed to move home on the farm and take over being a midwife for my mother. And be an herbalist, and I could also do music. That those all right. seemed like womanly things that I was able to do. So, in that vision of your education, it involved coming back. Oh, absolutely. So it was music, and then back. Ah, yeah, for sure. And then what happened? So, how did you? And I started reading history and philosophy and politics and international relations and geography, and then the world starts to feel really big, and then it, it can be very hard to start imagining retracting when there's all of this unexplored territory that you're suddenly aware of. And did you? When you heard people teaching you history, did you trust them straight away? I mean, what was the point where you got past the thought that this is actually brainwashing and you started to think this is... So you can read the books, but when the teachers... When you went to classes, at what point did you think these people are genuinely trying to broaden my horizons? You know, I think I trusted them quite a bit. I don't know if I trusted the books, but the people. Right, so I think it it's people. hard to maintain skepticism of people. And in a way, you know, I mean, especially with like with the Holocaust, you know, when I went and asked my parents about it, they didn't deny it. It wasn't like there were two narratives going on. It just never come up. So I think, you know, with the Holocaust, there was there wasn't so much the question of whose version of history was right. 
what was difficult about that was realizing, oh, this is something everybody knows about. My parents even know about this. And but they hadn't thought to tell you about it. They thought that they did. They were surprised. They're like, you know, I'm sure we've talked about this. I don't know what I, what I was doing. I was probably outside feeding the horses or something, and then I just missed it. But uh, I just, yeah, I hadn't. I think, you know, I knew that something, I had this idea that Jewish people had been killed in some context, so I wasn't completely ignorant of it. But I really believed that it was like the Boston Massacre. I thought it was like six people. So, and I didn't know the word Holocaust I'd never heard. So I had this kind of weird idea of it, but it had just never, nothing formalized, nothing, nothing on the scale. So I think what was, the Holocaust was difficult to learn about because what I was really learning about was, yes, it was something terrible that was part of it. And then the other part of it was kind of, kind of coming to terms with the depth of my own ignorance, which I did not, I was not aware of before. I had kind of believed that I'd been homeschooled and had received a kind of education. I kind of thought that. At least some part of me did until, until I got to a school and met people who actually had had an education and that. I think some people are surprised when they read your book. I have to say, I was kind of surprised. I work in a university, but I didn't quite see it, that you think of BYU as a Mormon university. It's a conservative university, in a sense. I mean, it comes from a particular part of the states where the, the worldview tends to be pretty conservative. But it was an amazingly, not liberal in any political sense, but liberal education in the sense it was broad-ranging, it was very varied, it was very open. It was actually an amazingly, it sounds like, an amazingly open mind-opening form of education. But your teachers, they weren't trying to tell you how the world should look. They were actually trying to open it up for you. Is that fair? I felt like that was fair. I mean, there are certain things you would not go to BYU to learn about because you're not going to learn about them. Feminism. I never heard a serious defense of feminism at BYU. In fact, I never heard feminism or feminist used as anything besides an insult mm. until I got to Cambridge. Uh, so there are things at BYU that that's not where you go for that. And that might be changing now, I'm not sure. But I think, I think in general, I did find it to be a very open culture because I think, and I don't know if it's the religion because Mormonism has this wonderful thing where we're all children of God and, and, and if, if you disagree with someone about something, really what you want to do is, is persuade them so you can save their soul. But that thing that happens so often, I think, at other universities that I've experienced where you immediately assume a bad motive or you immediately kind of almost get to a place of dehumanizing another person because of a disagreement. Uh, that didn't happen there. And so in a lot of ways, I felt a lot more free to express views that were very far from what other people thought. And I never once had someone accuse me of being ungenerous or of being intentionally, of, you know, I never had anyone, I, I said racist things. I never had anyone accuse me of being a racist. I grew up in a family that used the N-word. And, uh, and I had to kind of through learning about civil rights, through learning about history, actually come to terms with that and why that vernacular, why it was a whole language that had been created for no other purpose than to dehumanize people. But that's not how I'd grown up with it. And, and I, was, I was prejudiced in pretty much every way, probably. And uh, I never had anyone. I had people talk to me about what I was saying. I had people argue with me, for, for sure. I never had anyone um, assume that I was just a terrible human being or, or, or completely reduce me to that, to that thing I was doing. I, I never had that at BYU. And so when you say at other universities you've known, so that's Harvard and Cambridge, right? So that's how the story moves on. To Cambridge, then some time at Harvard too. So those are the universities, presumably then, when you don't find that kind of... Um, what you have just described as a kind of tolerance, there is a different sort of intolerance there. I did feel like, and I, you know, I, <laughs> I did say once that Cambridge was a cult. Uh, and I loved Cambridge. Cambridge was great. Cambridge is an amazing place. But I did feel like, um, I think especially because people accuse Mormonism so much of being a cult. And the funny thing is, I'm not Mormon. I don't really have a dog in the fight. But um, I'm no longer practicing. But I, I do find the idea that Mormonism is, is cultish kind of strange because to me, the, um, to me the defining characteristic of a cult is that you ostracize people for ideological, for not keeping ideological purity. And that is a movement that I think has taken hold in, in liberal universities in a big way in the last 10 years. I, I've said this before, I, I feel like there were people 
but I met at Cambridge, a vast majority of them were there. There, there is an ideology that has taken root, and there is, a, I think, a much greater tendency to attack people who don't hold it in ways that are not about persuading, and they're not about changing minds, and they're not even about free debate. They're more about establishing the kind of goodness of, of the people who are doing the attacking. And I find that to be much closer to cult behavior than anything that I experienced at BYU. I would be a lot more nervous to bring up something really controversial um, that had to do with feminism or racism or any of these really difficult, hard things to talk about. I would be no more nervous doing that at a dinner party in Cambridge than I would say with my brother who voted for Trump, where I know if I say something that he wildly disagrees with, that he will that he will find it bizarre that I think that, you know, <laughs> really? That's crazy. But I never think that, that, that the next line will be, you know, I can't believe you think that and you must be terrible and you've always been, you know, you're a morally bankrupt person. I never feel like it will get to that place immediately. I never worry that he'll stop responding to my messages. And not just because we're family, just in general in that community. Um, I've gone back and given some very, you know, childish rants about ideas I had not thought through well enough in that town, and I never have had anyone presuppose anything about me, bad about me as a human being, you know, maybe that I was being a bit foolish or that I'd been brainwashed, but not that I was a bad person. And I, I wish that were true in reverse, and I'm not sure it is. And it is true that one of the features of the contemporary language of education is people want it to be safe. Um, I mean, I'm not just talking about safe spaces, but there's a general feeling that education needs to be safe in some sense if it's going to work. And your story, I mean, your story is a very dangerous story in lots of ways. I mean, starting in the scrapyard. But also your experience of education is not safe. I mean, nothing about it no. was, was safe. Um, so when you, and you, you have seen more than most people because you've seen these things from more than one side. So when you go to somewhere like Cambridge or Harvard, um, do you think it's too safe? I think probably yes. I mean, safe is a funny thing because I think it always makes people think of physical danger, and I think you know we sh people shouldn't be in physical peril in school. And you're not you're not full physical. I'm not peril. for that. Um, but I think maybe I'm really worried. I suppose about the institutionalization of, of education. I feel like a lot of people, when you say the word education, what comes to their mind are exams, worksheets all these kind of passive, hyper-institutionalized things. And the thing is, an education is not the same thing as a school. They're, they're different things. An education is really just the individual's pursuit of understanding. That's all education is. And a school is just the, the thing that we use to try to achieve that. And I feel like a lot of the ways that we try to address the shortcomings of education, maybe we don't have teachers, maybe we're not paying them enough, maybe, they're all, maybe we've restricted funding. There's all these issues with education, but one of the ways we try to, re to address that is by standardizing the curriculum. If we can get everybody to the same level, then... But that's, again, that's just not really an education. That's completely institutional-based. It's entirely passive. It, it's of great concern, I think, that there's a perception, and it's not false, that you'll kind, you kind of know what you get out of, out of, out of a university. In the US, it's kind of that trope of you, you put in a Republican and you get out a Democrat. And uh, I think that's a bit alarming. Um, education should be dangerous in the sense that you don't know what, what's going to happen. Mm. And you don't know what the cost is going to be. And, and you give people access to a whole bunch of different ideas. And yeah, they might choose to study something that you don't like. That's the risk. That's what's great about it. They should get to do that. And, and you, should, you should not know what you're going to get out of a process of education if you do, then it's a conveyor belt, and it's an institution, and it's propaganda. It, it should be dangerous in the sense that you give, ac you give people access to ideas, and they're going to come to different conclusions than you want them to. And that's what makes it unsafe. You know, For me, education was not very safe. It cost me a lot. It cost me half my family. But I think, I think that there's always a price that you pay for real change. And I'm not convinced that if you try to make education safe in the sense of um, of an institution and everything is really monitored and everyone learns the same things and we know what we're going to get out of it. It's hard for me to see how that is an education in any meaningful sense. I think, it's, I think that that is something else. And so your, your story, the tagline of your story, as you just described it, but to take us to the end, is didn't set foot in a classroom before you were 17. At 27, you had a PhD from Cambridge. So that's a pretty amazing 10 years of education. Um, 
you can't replicate that, and I assume you wouldn't advocate that people should no. follow that path. Um, no. So how do you? And so yours is you know, a really distinctive version of encountering education as a thing that you had to fight for. Um, you really had to want it, and then every time you you get to the next level, it's really fresh because you just had no idea what was coming next. You know, we got to know each other at Cambridge, and you were, yeah. you know, unlike other students, you didn't know what the next thing was, and that made it dangerous, and it made it difficult, and it made it really exciting. So how do you, for people who kind of have an expectation that this, their education is a story that runs from four in this country mm. through to 18, and then it, you know, nearly half of young people now go to university, 21, and increasing numbers of people do masters and so on. This is a long story, and they kind of know it's meant to have a particular arc. How do you, how do you get some of the excitement back? The unexpected, like, what, what's, what's going to happen next? I'm, I'm trying the baby steps philosophy where I think, <laughs> again, I wouldn't say to people, well, just check the schools out and everyone should just stay at home until they're 17 and then hope for the best. That's not <laughs> necessarily my view. Or, like, hide the encyclopedias, because if you're really lucky, you'll get a kid who will, like, crawl under the couch and read it. Uh, that's true. If you're really lucky, you will. But that's not necessarily a mo mode. It's not going to work for everyone. No. It, didn't work, it wouldn't work for me. I never did that. Um, but I think... I think it's just in the nature of human beings to care about the things that they feel like they have an investment in, that they have some control over. I think it's why you know child psychologists tell you with your four-year-old that you can tell them, OK, you can take a nap or you can clean your room. And neither one of those choices are great. But it's kind of the illusion of being able to make meaningful decisions about your body and your mind and what you do with it that I think just human beings crave. Nobody likes to be corralled. Nobody likes to be chained up, even in even in in their mind or what they're forced to do. So I think the idea that we take something like education that is so much about the individual pursuing knowledge and then give people so little choice over what they learn and how they learn it, yeah, there are going to be things that you have to, quote unquote, force people to learn. But I think in as much as you can have scope for people to make choices about what they read, you know, what poets do you want to read? Yeah, you, we should read some poetry, but there are a lot of poets, so you can pick which ones that you read. What novelist do you want to read? We're going to do novelists in the 1960s, and there's, here's a range, and you can read five of them, or you can read two of them, or whatever. You get to pick. I think it's, it's this feeling that people have that they get to participate in the creation of their mind. And that, I just don't think you can expect people to have any buy-in in any meaningful sense. If you, if you don't give them any control over it. And we complain all the time that kids aren't excited about education, and they're not engaged with their teachers, and they're not excited about, their, about what they're learning. And I think, well, when was the last time that you were really excited about something that you were forced to do, you know, that you had no say over? So I'm, I'm sure people will have a lot of questions for Tara. I'm going to ask one more, and then we'll take some from the audience. And it's a, it's a question, in a way, about politics, because uh, you've, in a way, you, I mean, you've seen many different bits of our political life, but you've seen three kind of environments. You've got rural Idaho, um, you've got a conservative university, so it's broadly, you know, most people at BYU would have been Republicans, right? But this is <laughs> yeah. the, yeah, okay. But this is the, as it were, the educated bit. And then Cambridge, Harvard, what Americans would call liberal, what we would call something else, but, you know, the, uh, that side of the political spectrum. And we do know increasingly that education is one of the great dividers in politics. Whether you did or didn't go to university was the big divider in Brexit, the big divider in the Trump vote. And a lot of people are really troubled by the thought of how you bridge that divide. I mean, what, mm. how do people across these different worlds talk to each other? So you see, and, most, and part of the problem is very few people move across that. And, and the journey that you've made is incredibly rare. So you, you probably have a different perspective. So how do people, or what's going wrong that people cannot see what the world looks like from the other side of the education divide? They just don't, they don't even understand it. I think there's two things going on there. One is we say that, that education is, uh, should be equal and that everyone should have equal access to it, but nothing in our policy, or very few things in our policy reflect that. So schools are not equal. No matter where the funding comes from, they're just not, and not even if they're funded by the government, they're not equal. And that, that's definitely true in the US. I think it's true here. And um, so we, we just immediately kind of drop the ball on that and, and, and allow, allow the basic education that people get to be vastly different 
based on economic and geographical and probably on racial factors. And so that's a huge issue. That's immediately going to separate it out so that people who get a really good education are, are a certain type of people. They have a certain kind of identity. They have a certain type of interest. You've written a lot about education as an interest group. That's a huge problem. You cannot sell to people that education is a universal good and then deny them meaningful access to it and say, well, education is just a good all on its own, and we should respect anyone with an education. And when you're denying these people, they don't really have a meaningful shot at it. So that's a, that's a serious problem. I think the other thing about education is this institutionalization issue. Because again, if you know what you're getting out of it, and it is not completely distinguishable from pop propaganda, and it is so institutionalized, again, that is going to be something that is, that is going to separate the people with an education from other people in, in meaningful ways. And not in meaningful ways that they can communicate with each other and understand each other and, and have debates, because they're actually coming from just completely different walks of life. Mm. And so, I, I mean, I think, I also dislike this idea that we've tied it to institutions so much, because in education, should be something that people feel like they can pursue on their own. And I, I think, again, if, if you raise people with this passive idea of education, that what an education is is exams and worksheets, I think it just seeps into the culture, the idea that you can't learn things. And that, you know, when I was going to write the book, I had a lot of people, it's just, for one, it's just in the air that you have to go get an MFA and you have to have all of this tutelage to learn how to write. And I feel kind of lucky that, you know, my dad, for all his nutty ideas, one of the things he would say to us all the time is, you can learn anything better than someone else can teach it to you. And he probably meant that a bit as other people don't know anything. But I don't think it has to mean that. I think it can mean, I think, I think the principle there is that if you want to learn about literature, you will learn more if you want to learn it with just a book than you will if you don't want to learn it and a Nobel laureate spends a year trying to teach you. And I, I really think that. Uh, if you want to learn it, that's the difference between being able to do it and not. And so I think, in a way, I think it does harm us that, again, education is so institutionalized. When we talk about educated people, we mean people who've been to universities. And increasingly, we mean people who've been to like a couple universities. We don't even count all the universities. They don't all count. And that's odd, really. And, and, and one of the things that you're reading your book comes across very clearly if you're on as it were, the educated side of this line is, you know, there is always a danger that people who have been educated think they know better because mm. it comes with that kind of cachet attached to it. And therefore, they think they know the other side of the politics better than the other side of the politics knows them. Yeah. And that's not clear at all. It's not clear that people with the education understand the people without any better. And in fact, probably they don't understand them no, at all. I make myself unpopular here, but I hear from a lot of people, they take that, that, I think it was Michael Gove, the people have had enough of experts. And I know a lot of people who feel like the only thing to be learned from major political events like Brexit or Trump is that there's a large group of people who are incredibly ignorant. And that's, that explains everything about the world and that they don't care about knowledge. I don't, I just don't think that that explains it. You know. If I go back to Idaho and I say, oh, yeah, I, and it comes up that I did a year at Harvard, it's like they speak about Harvard and Idaho in hushed terms. There's an unbelievable amount of respect for Harvard, you know. But, um, but they don't necessarily feel that the, that the people who are coming from those institutions are representing their interests or care about their interests or understand their interests. And they're not wrong. They're not. <laughs> um, and also, there, I mean, this is something, if, you, if anyone read Thinking Fast and Slow, Kahneman writes a lot about this, where um, there are types of experts that their expertise makes them less accurate. If the, if, if the fields that they're making predictions in are essentially generally governed by chaos, what happens is the little bit that they know makes them overconfident, and they're actually less reliable. And politics is one of those things. Another thing is finance, that he says, actually, you're kind of better off not knowing a lot, because you, your hubris will cost you more than your ignorance. And uh, so I think in some ways, yeah, I, I don't know if it's a hostility to intelligence. I don't think it's that they're worshiping at the altar of ignorance. I think that they have a, a fairly well-founded fear that, that that there is a difference between them and the people who are making decisions that is not, not necessarily about intelligence. It might be a little bit that, uh, but, but it is also more malicious and more insidious than that and has a lot more to do with people protecting their own interests at the sac at, while sacrificing theirs. It's probably a good point at which to ask people if they would like to ask any questions. So there are a couple of microphones. Um, there's one question in the front here, and then we'll 
and then, uh, yeah, so we start here, yeah. Enjoy that very much, very good. You haven't mentioned your mother. Um, what kind of person is she, and how has your relationship with her developed? So my mother, I've always felt like my mother is sort of two people, and there's the version of her when you're with her, and then there's a version of her when she's with my dad. And they are not the same person. You know, I mean, I talked about my brother, and he, was, he had issues with violence, and I confronted my parents about that. When I confronted my mother with it, she, um, you know, she believed me, weirdly enough, and took it really seriously and, and you know, said some really wonderful things that, for me, were very healing at the time. She said that she wished that she'd protected me, that she was my mother, that that was her job. And it was this incredibly healing thing for me because it was almost like when she said to me you know, that she hadn't quite been the mother to me that she wished she'd been, it was kind of like she became that mother you know, for the first time. I felt like oh, she wanted to do that. And I kind of went back and, and in my mind almost lived a different life where she had done that because she wanted to and that was meaningful. With my mother though, when my dad got involved and he decided that I was lying, that I was, he eventually would decide I was possessed and my mother would completely split. And if you ask me now, you know, which version of my mother is the real one, I don't know. I know which one I want to believe in, but I suspect if you asked her, you know, the, the person she would claim to be is, is the person who says, I'm, I'm lying, that's who she thinks she is. And I, 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 don't, I don't have a, a simple answer to that. She's a really complicated person. I, I only really know which version of her I, I like to think about when I think about my mom. Sure. Yeah. Hi, this is also about your mother, because when I read the book, I was quite staggered at the success of her herbal remedies. And I wanted to ask you, did people come to her because of faith in those or because they couldn't afford uh, conventional medicine? I think both. There's definitely some skepticism of doctors in Idaho, but I think there are a lot of people who just don't have health insurance and um, can't afford to go to a doctor. And so there's someone who says, you know, I've got some echinacea, that might work. Um, and then it just balloons out from there. And one of the things you say in the book is that um, you have to have lived in that world to understand why people maybe don't trust government, because they don't encounter it in the way that we, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly yeah. limited, that not having health insurance is just part of it, like government, appears in their lives very, very rarely. And when it does, it's not to Yeah, if you live help. in Boston, you experience a medical system, you experience schools that work, you experience roads that are maintained. If you live in Idaho, your primary, your primary encounter with the government is, uh, is speeding tickets and farm regulations that actually don't make sense. Like, you know, the, the, the dumb stuff you have to do because someone who, like, doesn't know the difference between a barrel and a wheelbarrow is making stuff up. And they're not, you know, they're not completely, so I'm sure a lot of the regulations do make sense, but a lot of them don't. And um, uh, I don't think it's surprising that they think, oh, government is inefficient. And I think their experience of it, it probably mostly is. If you experience it in Boston, it, it mostly isn't. And you feel it's, it does good you've got you 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 to do it yourself. Your you have to, yeah. yeah. One here. Yep. At what point did you realize that um, your father's beliefs were maybe wrong or that you, um, that you realized that there was something different out there and it wasn't all evil people trying to kill you? <laughs> uh, again, slower than you'd think. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I ever realized that my dad was wrong. I think it was more that I realized I thought something different than he did. And that was a new feeling for me. I'd never had a different idea than my dad did. When I was little, I, had, I didn't go to school. I didn't have access to other points of view. And then I got access to different points of view. And then I started to develop that muscle in your brain where you say, someone thinks this, everyone around me thinks this, and I, I think something else. And it, you know, it took me a lot longer to kind of put all of those ideas together and think, actually, I'm just not sure his grip of the world is, is really what I'm going for. Uh, but initially, it was just that that hardest of skills to develop, which is to have your parents say something and to have you think, I'm not sure. I might think something else. And, and you do also talk about, even quite far on in the story, how you can be pulled back to like doubt. now. I think, you know, now. one of the things okay. that we know is when people hear the same thing said a number of times, it sounds true. Your brain will all, there are always going to be things that my dad has said to me since I was little that intuitively I'm going to be really, that, that makes perfect sense. And then I have to stop and think, mm, not really. Yep. 
Hello. Um, I really, I read and really enjoyed your book. Thank you. It was beautifully written. One of the things that didn't make sense to me that I couldn't put together was towards the end you say something like that of your seven siblings, uh, three of you have doctorates and the other four don't have the equivalent of a high school diploma. And um, how do you account for that? Or what is it that... Because if it was just you, then we could sort of have this idea that maybe it's you that's extraordinary. But... Yeah, I wish. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. Um, I think some of that credit probably goes to my brother Tyler, because he was just a freak of nature, and without any encouragement or knowledge of why he should go to college, just went and you know, taught himself trigonometry, which even after he had a PhD in mechanical engineering, told me that teaching himself trigonometry was the hardest thing he's ever done. Um, but he just did it. And, um, and then also had enough interest in his younger siblings to continue coming back and continue trying to get us to go. So I, I don't know the answer. I, I don't have an answer to that and why some, why some people leech onto learning and catch up and some people don't latch onto learning. I, I don't have an answer, but I, I wish I did. There was one down here. Oh, okay, sure. We'll follow you. You, you do it and we'll, <laughs> and Tara will answer. I found myself um, wondering what you got from your father, and, and actually that, although the book is a lot about the danger that he, he posed to you and the difficulties of, of being his daughter, actually in some ways a lot of what you've been capable of achieving comes from him in some ways, the, the kind of self-reliance and the ability to, th I mean, to think in a singular way, although it's obviously completely different, you know, completely different universes, just to, to, to reflect a bit on, on how you might be like him in some ways and what you got from him. Yeah, I think that, that a conviction in, in being able to teach yourself things is probably the thing that is the most important to me, that I value the most. There were certainly other things. I mean, my parents gave me a really varied and interesting childhood. They did. And they gave me a family that felt like a very coherent family unit. They gave me an identity. They gave me a belief in things and an idea that if you, that, I, I mean, there was no cynicism in my childhood, which sounds a bit strange to say, given that we were literally worried that everyone was going to come kill us. But, um, <laughs> but there wasn't this kind of paralyzing cynicism that people get where you don't want to believe in anything and you don't want to be sentimental in any way because you might, um, I don't know, show an emotion or something. I don't know. We didn't have that. You know, there was a, everything that we believed in, we believed fully in, and we committed ourselves to it fully. And there was no shame in that. And I, I'm grateful for that as well. I'm grateful that I was never crippled by, by cynicism or thinking, oh, everything is meaningless and pointless, and why do anything? And uh, I, you know, we, there was none of that. We were true believers in every way. And, uh, and I value that as well. I, I think you know, there's a lot of things that I value from my relationships with my family, which is why it was very difficult to give them up. And I, it's hard for me to communicate to people um, that you know, the loss of a difficult relationship or even a toxic relationship is still a loss. It still feels painful to give it up. I mean, you miss people like that in your life as much as you would miss anyone, maybe even more. And, and the love in those relationships is real. It's not a trick. Uh, the love is absolutely real. One of the last things that my father said to me before I stopped seeing him, and again, he believed I was possessed at the time. Uh, you know, he came to me and gave me a hug, and he said, I love you. Do you know that? And I said, I do. That has never been the issue. Uh, because it wasn't. I always knew that my dad loved me. What I was still trying to learn is that people can love other people and still hurt them. And so these relationships, I think they're... They're really complicated. And it's taken me a long time to learn that you can love someone and really value and have amazingly positive memories of them. And it still might be the right choice for you to walk away from them. It might not, but in my, in my case, I feel like it was. And I think there was a period after I stopped seeing my parents where I was just so angry with them. I think I lost a lot of the good things that they'd given me. Uh, I didn't have access to them anymore because I was too angry. And it, it took me a while to realize, you know, I think I have theories about anger. I think anger is a, a good thing. I think it has a role to play. It's a mechanism your brain uses, self-defense, to get you away from situations that do you harm. Um, but for me, it was kind of important that once I was away, once I was safe, I felt like I could just let go of that anger and live a better life without it. And it's nice now, I kind of, I, I feel like someone who had a beautiful childhood. I also feel like someone who had a difficult childhood. And I think, 
what's, what's been important to me about writing the book and having whatever journey I've had is to get to that place where I can see the value and, and remember that my dad loved me, even though that there were things later that would be very hard. Um, I thought the book was absolutely fantastic, so moving. Um, my question is about one of the characters in the book that you don't really go into in a lot of depth, but is clearly a constant throughout the kind of, I don't know, your late teens and 20s, which is Drew. Um, and having read the early part of the book, I would have assumed that it would be quite hard for you to form lasting, loving, romantic relationships. But the implication of the ongoing relationship with Drew is that you, you did. And so I'm just kind of curious to know about that and what was it that did enable you to have that kind of nice functioning relationship? Yeah, I write a lot about the issues with my, uh, <laughs> you know, I had this really difficult relationship with my brother and there were a lot of years after that that I, I couldn't, that's fair. I just wasn't able to do that. I think having trust issues is, is a cliche, right? Not being able to, it's not a, it, it doesn't feel like a cliche when you're experiencing it, it feels entirely unique. But uh, I did struggle for a long time and I think I think I did get over that through a lot of years, through a lot of therapy. <laughs> um, you know, I, people also ask me a lot if I have faith, if I still have religious beliefs, people want to know about that. And I, I, for me, these two questions are linked because there's a chapter in the book that I call, it's a weird title, it's called The Substance of Things. And I took that from Hebrews 11, 1, which is that scripture that says, you know, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the essence of things not seen. And for me, I think that idea of faith would change over time, where even though I had had certain experiences in my own family that had caused me to be distrusting, um, a bit harsher than I should be, unable to really imagine a, a functional friendship with someone that wouldn't end in, in some kind of violence or betrayal, that's where that concept of faith became very important to me, that you, you have faith in things that are hoped for that are not yet seen. You believe in a better world than the one that you have experienced. And that's kind of, I guess, where the concept of faith would go for me. Um, I believe that people can heal from things. I, I, I really do. I, I feel like I've experienced that. It's, it doesn't happen overnight, but I, I believe in it. Thank okay. time for uh, one more, yeah. My, my question here. Hello. Sorry. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, my, my question is twofold, actually. Firstly, uh, something about cults that you obviously referred to in your talk. Um, to what extent do you think that the, the contemporary wave of social media is actually generating cults all around us, that we actually have cults multiplying left, right, and center depending on our lives and our interests. That, that's one part of it. The second part of it is um, about brainwashing. You referred to your father's comments on brainwashing. Now you are out of all that. Now you are with us out here. To what extent do you think we are actually being brainwashed, but maybe in a different way to that indicated by your father? Mm. I've talked a little bit about the second, so I'm going to focus, I think, on the first one. You know, I think, um, I'm just having a moment here. What was the first part of the question? Social media. Are we Thank surrounded you, yeah. by okay. um, online cultishness? Also short-term memory loss. Yeah, I think it does in the sense that when I think of, like I said, when I think of a cold, I think of when you um, ostracize people for not being ideologically pure enough. And I think that happens because you cease to see people in, uh, in their complexity as full human beings. You just see this one idea. Someone uses a racial slur, and rather than asking yourself, why do they think that? Why do they think that's OK? What's up with this person? You, that's all you see of them. They're, they're completely reduced to this fault that they have. And I'm extremely grateful that that didn't happen to me. When I did things like that, when I said things like that at BYU, at Cambridge, people around me did not do that. They saw me as a whole person, and they engaged with me as a whole person, and they talked to me as a whole person. And ultimately, they persuaded me that I was wrong. But I think online, that's maybe one, of the, maybe one of the issues of why it does has this effect is that literally all you know about the person is this horrible thing that they said. That is the only thing that you know about them. And so that whole process of dehumanizing a person happens a lot faster. And you know, when I wrote my book, my dad says a lot of very stereotypically extreme, radical things. But I really hope that when people read that, they get a sense of, of a full human being. You know, this was a man who had a family, who cared about his children, who worked hard every day. 
For my dad, for whatever crazy reason, not giving your kids medical care when they were, you know, when they'd been on fire, that's what love looked like. He really believed the doctors would injure them. And, and in order to appreciate that and not just think, oh, he's a terrible person who doesn't care about his children, you have to see him as a full human being. You have to, have to understand the capacities that he has for empathy and self-sacrifice. And that doesn't, that doesn't make his behavior OK. That's not to say, well, well, great, we should emulate that. And it's not to justify it or, or to say that kid, they can't be angry if they have that response. That, but I do think anything where you take one, one tiny sliver of a person and make that everything about them, that's going to lead to some just incredibly unproductive conversations where no one will be persuaded of anything. I'm afraid we're out of time. I know some people here have read the book. For those of you that haven't, I hope you've heard enough to understand this is uh, it's an amazing book, and it's about education in the fullest sense that you can imagine that word. I couldn't recommend it more highly. Tara will be signing copies in the bookstore straight after this. Please join me in thanking Tara.